The Apostle Paul is writing this passage. Listen uh, as he writes. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, everybody shout, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I pass on to you what most, what was most important, shout most important, and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen, shout seen, by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen, shall seen, by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen, shall seen, by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw, shout saw, him. There is the reading. Everybody say amen. Uh, please be seated. Lord, we really are asking you to do something unique, not just in this message, but over the course of the next six weeks, beginning with this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the premise of this series is pretty obvious, and that is that everything that we know and see has a starting point. If you look at this beautiful building, it had a starting point, started in the imagination of somebody's mind, it later ended up as an architectural drawing somewhere. And out of that architectural drawing, the foundation was laid and this building came to be, but it had a starting point. Tell the person next to you, you had a starting point, tell them. All right, turn to somebody else and say, and I had a starting point, tell them. It's a fact, we all had a starting point. So is it true about our faith. Our faith didn't just come to us out of thin air. Our faith also had a starting point. For many of us, if you're like me, your, the starting point of your faith was as a little kid growing up. It's what your parents told you about the Bible, what your parents told you about church. Or maybe you went to, uh, if you were in my tradition, you went to Sunday school. Or you went to, uh, if you were in the Roman Catholic tradition, First Communion. Or if you're in some other faith context. Maybe as a teenager you first heard about faith from a preacher or, or a, a pastor. Or again, or maybe a rabbi. Or some other faith leader. But all of us had a starting point. Mostly in our early years. That starting point produced for us what I want to call a framework of faith. Everybody shout framework. framework. There are a lot of things that could be in that framework of faith. I've just picked three things that I think in general most of us, if we, when we first came to faith in whatever format it was, we essentially believe. God is uh, good, I would say all good and all powerful. We believe God punishes evil and rewards good. And we believe that God hears and answers prayer. Those are just three good tenets that I think that most of us who have faith, we would actually hold to 
especially in our early years as we started to grow. Now, here is where Paul begins to help us just a little bit because uh, in his letter to the Christians in Corinth, who are meeting all over the city in different uh, small groups in homes, and uh, a lot of folk had come out of secular cultural uh, Corinth, others came out of the Jewish context, uh, all came into this uh, believing community. And for uh, 14 chapters in this letter, Paul has covered a lot of complicated, challenging stuff. He's really challenged these people. Uh, he's talked about a wide range of things from generosity to sexuality to sex to being married uh, to being single to love to what a healthy church body looks like uh, to prophetic gifts. He's talked about a wide range of things that no doubt totally and completely challenged the people in this letter that he was writing to. And so he then comes to this point and he says, all right, I want to make sure before I close this letter out that at least we have the same starting point. Everybody shout starting point for what's most important. Shout most important. All right, now let's look at how, how you know, verse 1, he says, look, I just kind of want to take you back to the gospel message that I gave you at the very, very, very beginning that brought you into this community, into a relationship with Jesus. In verse 2, he starts here, he says, uh, it, is, it is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. And I really love this phrasing. Unless, of course, everybody say unless, of course. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Now, at this point, Paul taps into living skepticism that was breathing and alive in the Christian community in Corinth. He does not scold it. He does not dog it out. In a sense, he welcomes the fact that there are some people who are honest about the fact, you know, what I started off believing, I, I'm not really sure I believe it now. It was best described for me by my dear friend George Hinneman, who is the pastor of uh, University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, and we were talking about this. And he said, you know, Herman, I think the best way to describe this is that uh, how many of you are familiar with Sunday school? Just show your hand. Sunday school. Very good. All right. Most of you. Good. Good. So that's where I grew up. I, 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 he said you had Sunday school, which is where I grew up in my church. I grew up in Sunday school. It was terribly boring. <laughs> so wonder that I'm here today. Which is why we put so much energy in our children and youth ministry uh, program to make sure that it is both full of truth and relevance, but it is also fun and exciting so that our kids can say, I want to go to church. All right, celebrate that. And we celebrate our CYM people who work really hard and our Wednesday night program for our high schoolers. So what George said is we've got, we, we, a lot of us started off in Sunday school then we had Monday school. And as, as life transpired, at some point, we stopped going to and are growing in Sunday school. But we kept growing in Monday school. 
And Monday school took us through middle school and high school and took us, for some of us, through college and for some of us through post-grad. And one day we looked around and we recognized that while our kind of knowledge of the world continued to evolve and develop, our faith knowledge stopped at Sunday school. And we woke up to discover that there was a gap, shout gap, gap between our understanding of the world and our sense of faith. And I kind of want to spend the next six weeks, if you will, kind of exploring that gap, trying to address that gap. Uh, let me put it another way. A lot of us grew up learning Bible studies and uh, Bible stories and songs and I mean, for example, you remember, some of you remember singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible, right? Some of you grew up praying the prayer, now I lay me down to, I pray the Lord my soul to, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to, all right. It shaped our fundamental faith. But then we grew up and we went to school and or we got into the world and we started uh, seeing and noticing stuff like tens of thousands of people being wiped off the planet in Rwanda, for example, or Bosnia, for example. And we once believed that God rewarded the good and punished the evil, but now we're looking at that and we're trying to... We, uh, we remember our mother who... We conclude, you know, in terms of good people, think about our moms who was Christian and faithful and prayed for one of our siblings or prayed for an uncle or prayed for our grandparents that they would heal and they died. We prayed that God would redeem a marriage and it fell apart. And the spouse got away with the house and the money, and, I, and you're in a little small apartment, and you're beginning to ask the question, well, I'm not sure that God actually hears and answers prayer. I'm not sure that God actually rewards good and punishes bad. I, I, I'm just not sure. And for some of us who are skeptical, we, we just kind of articulate that out. Some, some folks say, I'm just... I'm just I, I'm just not sure. And so you've kind of drifted away from church. And some of you are watching my video or you're here today. Not necessarily because you believe, but you know, you had a, you, you're on a date. <laughs> she or he said, come on, let's go to church and then we'll have some lunch afterwards. You're like, yeah. I don't really want to go to church, but you know, everybody's got to pay a little cost. It's only an hour and 15 minutes. How bad can it be? <laughs> Reminds me, uh, when my wife and I started dating, on our first date, we were at a recreational center owned by the Roman Catholic Church on campus. And Rhonda looked at me. She comes from a family of pastors. Her stepfather was a pastor. Her brother was a pastor, is a pastor. Granduncle is a pastor. She looked at me, and she said, you're going to be a pastor, aren't you? I said, oh, no. 
Are you kidding? I am not going to be a pastor, right? I, I, I got plans to go to law school, a PhD in philosophy, and end up in politics. You know, I am not going to be a pastor. But she looked at me again, and she smiled. You're going to be a pastor. And I said, listen, I'm not going to be a pastor. But if saying I'm going to be a pastor would get me a second date, I'm going to be a pastor, baby. <laughs> Rhonda didn't want to marry a pastor at all. So she would tell you she was here. I persuaded her. And then God and kind of tricked her. I am a pastor. <laughs> so some of us are here in church, not necessarily because we believe, but someone invited us. And yet I want to suggest, I believe that even for you, deep down inside, there's a little part of you that is hoping that the pastor will say something that will help you to believe. So part of you is hoping. For others among us, we're, you know, we grew up, there's been a disconnect to some degree between our experience and life, but you know, we said, at the end of the day, that's what faith is for. Faith is, I always talk about it as a gap filler. But the truth be told, we too have some questions we haven't acknowledged because we're afraid if we say something, people will say, well, you know, in my small group, they'll start saying I'm not a Christian because I would kind of raise these questions. Or some other people might say, you know, I would raise the questions, but it might undermine my own faith. So I'm just going to kind of keep it tucked away to myself. And I'm just going to kind of pretend like everything is okay. But here is the reality, uh, good people, that in order for us to grow, we have to always be willing to contend with our doubt. And there's, and there's one level of faith, and if there's another level of faith, to get from this level of faith to that level of faith, there's doubt in between. So you've got to work through your doubt. This means you've got to be honest about it. I'm hoping with this series, I can encourage you to really kind of be honest. As we try to figure this thing out. So, what Paul said in verse 2 of uh, chapter 15, you throw it back up there, is where some of us, at least some of us might be, as we think about what we learned as children or as teenagers or early in our life, uh, of, of course, unless, of course, you believe that something that was, you believe something that was never true in the first place, and some of us are kind of maybe thinking, I believe something that was never true in the first place. Well, here's why I want to raise this, because the Bible says that God wants you to worship him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. He doesn't want you to check your mind at the door. He challenges you to bring your total self into this experience. So what I'm going to ask you to do uh, is to hit, to do what we, Apple, I'm an iPhone user, as you know. 
And by the way, on the 12th of September, <laughs> y'all do know the eight's coming out on the 12th. Anyway, <laughs> I digressed. Uh, if you own an iPhone, every now and then, there's so many programs going on that it gets stuck because it just can't keep up. And some of us, there's so much going on with us faith-wise and theologically-wise in life, we kind of got stuck. And what you have to do in order to unstick the phone, you got to do a hard reset. you got to push these two buttons together at the same time. you got to hold them. Then the phone shuts down, wipes the clean uh, straight, and it reboots again. And you're able to prioritize. So that's what I'm going to say. So for those of you who may be skeptics, what I want to encourage you to do over the course of the next six weeks is to hit a hard reset. Whatever you think you know about faith, I want you to wipe the slate clean. Open your mind. Position yourself to be surprised. Tell the person next to you, I just might be surprised. Tell them, I just might. Tell somebody else, I actually want to be surprised. Tell them, I want to be surprised. For those of you who are solid in your faith, you know, trust the word so forth and so on, I want you to do a hard reset also. And I want you to clear the screen. That doesn't mean I want you to forget everything that you've learned theologically, all that kind of stuff. No, no. I want you to hit a hard reset because I want you uh, to work with me so that we can figure out, among all the stuff you know, and all the different debates and theological reflections that you have, all that stuff that's going on in your mind, in your head, your heart, I want you to begin to figure out what's the most important. Come on, shout most important. And so in a sense, we just want to hit reset, and we kind of want to figure out if I was starting as a Christian for the very first time, if I was contemplating whether I want to be a Jesus follower or not, where would I start today? What's the most important thing? And that's what Paul is hinting at in this text. So go back to uh, the passage there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and put verse 3 up. Watch what he says. I pass on to you what was what? What, what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Now, the next thing he's going to quote is that this is a, we think is a catechism that probably was shaped and formed around 33 AD, which is about three years after the events of Jesus' life on earth. And, and, and everybody uh, understood these basic points. Christ died for our sins. Everybody shout, Christ died. Everybody knew that Jesus was a historic figure. That was a debate in that, in that Corinthian context. Everybody knew that he was crucified. That was not a debate in that historical context. So theological implications is he was crucified for our sins. And then it says he died for our sins just as the scripture says. Next verse. And he was buried, shall buried. That was a historical fact. Everybody understood he was crucified. And in fact, he was buried. There was no debate about that. 
and he was raised from the dead. Where here, there is both theology and a historical fact. It's a historical fact that they buried him in a tomb late Friday evening, early Sunday morning. They went back, the stone was rolled, and there's no body there. The tomb was empty. As a matter of fact, they identified at least two, three different tombs if you actually go over there and check it out. And the fact is, it wasn't empty. It's a historical fact. The tomb is empty. It's a theological conclusion. One would think that he rose. Some people say, well, I don't know what happened. He might have body might have got stolen. But, but then he says, as the scriptures said. What, what Paul is arguing is that the most important thing, the place that you and I really need to start with our faith, uh, the starting point is around the question, who is Jesus? Come on, say it with me. Who is Jesus? So we have to start with this question, who is Jesus? Now, one of the things that set Christianity aside apart from other religions, because all religions have philosophical truths that they debate, as does Christianity, is that Christianity begins with answering that question not with a theological, philosophical debate, but it starts at an event. He lived, he died for our sins, and he rose again. And the fact that he rose again gives credibility to everything else, that he died for our sins. Everybody shout, he rose. Everybody shout, he lives. All right. So he starts at that event. That's the event. The event is resurrection. That is the ultimate proof from Paul's perspective that Jesus is who he says that he is because nobody has done what Jesus has done. They said, well, Paul, come on now, help us. To, he says, well, first of all, for those of you who are people of the book, shout people of the book. These are the Jewish folk who were part of his congregation, and uh, they became to be believers. But they knew the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament. And so he says, okay, start at that event. When you start at that event, it clarifies your reading of Scripture, of those biblical texts that was written 1,500 years earlier. It begins to clarify. For example, Isaiah 53 Verses 4 through 6, he said, now just read this again and think about what you saw and experienced with Jesus. And then read this text. Yet, it was our weaknesses he carried. Ties he carried the cross. You see the image there. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. You can see the cross. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. That's what we thought. Next verse, watch this. But, shall but. He was pierced. Another translation says he was wounded for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. He was beaten so we could be whole. And as Paul has his Jewish believers read this, all of a sudden they, 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 their minds explode with the reality. Oh, my God. He was whipped so we could be healed. They say, wow, that's Jesus. In a text that was written 1,500 years earlier, they go, wow, my 
And then it's Psalm 16. Paul would point to verse 10. says he was buried. But he knew that the grave couldn't hold him. And so Psalm 16, verse 10, you'll find these words. For you will not leave my soul among the dead. Allow your holy one, shout holy one, to rot in the grave. And then they notice that the tomb is empty. They say, oh my God, I get it. That's for those who, 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 for whom the book was incredibly important. Like for me, I, I trust the Bible. It's the center of my faith. And for the Jewish believers, uh, the, 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 the Jewish scriptures were center of their faith. So the event of his life, death for our sins and resurrection clarified their reading of the text. However, Paul then pivots. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Put, uh, start back at verse 3. Watch it. Watch this pivot. So this was passed down as the scripture says. Put verse 4. Watch this. He was buried and he was raised as the scripture says. Verse 5. Go. He was what? Seen by Peter and then by the 12. Next verse. Watch this. After that, he was what? Seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are what? Still alive. You can go check them out. That was Paul was talking in his contemporary context. Though some have died. Next verse. Watch this. Then he was what? Seen by James, his brother. And later by all the apostles. How many of you got a brother? Let me see your hand. All right. How many of you, if your brother came to you and said, I'm God, how many of you would believe him? <laughs> this is a big deal to say that his brother believed. We'll come back to that later. And later by all the apostles. Watch this. Next verse. Watch this. Notice the theme here. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also what? Saw him. Paul is making a point. Even if you don't have access to the scriptures, and for the New Testament was only written about 150 years, maybe 200 years after tens of thousands of people had come to believe in Jesus, although there were letters that was uh, moving about that Paul had written and treaties that had been written and so forth and so on that later was gathered into the New Testament. So most of the people who came to Jesus in the first 150 years who were not Jewish came to Jesus because of what Paul just laid out. He says, I've got a list of people from Peter, who I know, Paul says, uh, to the 12, who I've also known and met, uh, to 500 folk who saw him, to the brother of James, to the apostles, that these people, they saw Jesus alive after he was dead. He says, are you looking for historical evidence? Here's the witnesses. He lives. And if he lives, then the truth of his death for our sins, we can believe. And if he lives, then we've got hope. If he lives, Paul says, take my word, I know. Ask the person next to you, what do you think about Jesus? Ask them. All right, let's walk this through. 
Because inside of here are some barriers. I just want to kind of pull apart and we're finished for the day. He starts with Peter, who he knew. Peter was the closest disciple to Jesus. He was the one, and he would become the leader, first leader of the church after Jesus' resurrection. Peter was the one who, when Jesus says, who do people say I am? Peter raised his hand and said, hey, I know. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, you are right. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father. A little while later, Peter watches Jesus be arrested, charged, and sentenced to crucifixion. And it shatters his faith. Suddenly, Peter begins to conclude, the stuff that I thought was true is not true. Because if he was the Messiah, he would, he would overthrow the powers. If he was the Messiah, he would let them put him up there on the cross. If he was the Messiah, he would convene the angels to come and rescue him. Obviously, he was not who he said that he was. And the record shows that Peter was dismissed, was, was, was in full of fear and total disappointment. Some of us can't believe because of the disappointment that's in our lives that stands between us and what we expect or thought or assume that God would do. But Paul says, you've got to check Peter out. How do you explain somebody who became a coward who was hiding away, didn't want the Roman officials to find him? And then two weeks later, in Acts uh, 40 days, 50 days later, in Acts chapter 2, this same Peter is standing up in the streets of Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 32, preaching about this one called Jesus. Here's what he says, for God raised Jesus from the what? dead. And we are all what? Witnesses of this. And so we're going to stand out here in public and you want to come arrest us? Bring it on. You want to kill us? Bring it on. Because the same one who raised him from the dead will raise us from the dead. We are victorious in Jesus. You only develop that kind of faith if you've seen somebody who was dead but now lives. All right, then he goes to 12. I like the 12 because Thomas, I think, epitomizes the 12. Remember John, the writer of the, the Gospel of John. John was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Knew Jesus when his, when his inner circle. And so he chronicles what happened through the death and resurrection period of Jesus. And so uh, he talks about Thomas. I think Thomas epitomizes another challenge that we have in terms of believing. And, and, and among the, so if you go to uh, John uh, 20, beginning at verse 25, watch this. Here's, here's this interesting read. It says, they, meaning the, the, the rest of the disciples, told him, that's Thomas, we've, we've what? Seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, replied, are you crazy? What's wrong with y'all? And you may be crazy. I don't know what you've been drinking or smoking, but I want you to understand I'm not crazy because I've been alive all my years and I've seen plenty of people die. Not one of them got up from the dead. So let me just make it clear. I won't believe it unless I, what? See the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand in the wounds uh, in his side. In other words, I want some empirical proof. 
I want you to satisfy my, my need for, uh, for a, a proof that cannot be disputed. And unless you do that for me, I'm among the doubters. I'm not believing. I'm not telling nobody he's alive. Leave me out of this. Eight days later, next verse, the disciples were together again. Thomas thought he'd hang out just because he's trying to keep them from going off the cliff because obviously they've been they're crazy. And he loved them. I don't know. He said, man, they just like, they're becoming some kind of cult. But then, and this time, Thomas was with them. Watch this. I love this text. The doors were locked. Shout locked. But suddenly, in other words, suddenly, mysteriously, unexplainably, Jesus shows up in the room. Now, let me just make this clear. If Jesus can get up in the, from the dead, do you think locked doors can keep him out of your house? Come on. <laughs> Come on. Suddenly he shows up. Come on now. And Jesus is standing among them. And rather than cussing folk out, thanks be to God, he said, no, peace, baby, peace. And, and what he was doing, he comes out this, he's basically saying, all right, Thomas. I heard you eight days ago. You didn't think I was here, but I was here. I, I, I was listening to you, and you said, unless I showed up, I'm here. Check my hands out. Check the wound in my side. John's recording this. Come on now, eyewitness. He, he's showing us his journal. And Thomas said, oh, no, 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 no. That's God, I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was talking about. I thought they were crazy, but I discovered I'm crazy. You live. You lie. And suddenly these, the 12, is really 11 of them, because Judas had committed suicide. The 12 just reflects the title that was, helps us to know we're talking about the inner circle. The 12, every one of them except for John, over the next 30 to 40 years, would actually be martyred for the fact that they were convinced that they saw him alive. And they died unafraid because they died in relationship with the one who conquered death. And then he moves from that. He said, look, there was 500. First Corinthians 15 says, there was more than 500 people seeing him. Acts 1.3 says that Jesus showed up and with many different proofs. Uh, uh, and we say that these are the people who essentially went to uh, 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 Galilee when Jesus says, go ahead. And these people gathered. Matthew picks up a piece of it. And 27 talks about that some was there, some believed, some doubted. This, for me, reminds me that sometimes the challenge is it's my disappointment that gets in the way. Sometimes the challenge is it's my need for, to, to, for, to be real that gets in the way. Uh, and, and sometimes it, it, it's, it's, it's the question of how can, I, how can I believe in the midst of such suffering? These 500 folk, some of whom were still alive, I think they showed up. And they took a glimpse, that's him. Wow. 
I bet you among them was some of the folk who experienced the miraculous, see, because there's a lot of suffering going on in that day as it is in this day. There was mental illness going on. There was, there was widows who were, uh, who were out on the streets and being forced into prostitution. There was oppression. There was violence. There was all kinds of things that was happening. And these people all kind of gathered out of that context of suffering. And they were there. And they're trying to look past the other princess, trying to see, is that him? I'm trying to say, my God, it looks like him. I bet you some among them was probably the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years and she caught the ears of his, y'all remember that story? And and her hemorrhage stopped. I bet she was there. I I bet some of the folk who were in that crowd where he took a few fishes and a few loaves of bread and fed thousands of people, I bet you they were there. They They were saying, they were saying, wow, that's him. It did not mean an immediate end to their suffering. Oh, no. But what it meant was that as they saw him and they came to terms with the fact that he had conquered death, it meant that in the midst of their suffering, they had hope. Can you say hope? Hope. That I don't know when and how it's going to happen, but surely if he conquered death, Surely he still sits on the throne. Surely he's still in charge. And somewhere, somehow, in time or eternity, I can't explain it, but he will have the last word. Followers of Jesus are people who conclude that he will have the last word. Then there's James, of course. You know, in John chapter 7, again, John, eyewitness, he records verse 5. He records the fact, makes it very clear. The brothers of Jesus did not believe that he was the Messiah. It was familiarity, y'all. They knew him too well. <laughs> I remember you crawling under the table. I remember you boo-booing in your diapers. You God. You ain't God. What's wrong with you? But in Acts 1, verse 14, on the other side of the resurrection, when after Jesus has shown himself repeatedly over 40 days, the text says that among the folk in that upper room, 120 people, that among them was his brothers who believed. And what would it take to get, your, to get you to believe that your brother is God? What would it take? Well, if he died and then rose again and walked with you and ate with you, hung out with you, you might start thinking, well, maybe. That's James. And it ends by a discussion of the apostles, which, you know, are not the 12. It's just the folk who've been commissioned by Christ to go share the good news. And it really raises the question, how can I believe when nobody else around me in my culture believes? And the apostles ultimately concluded, I can believe because we met him. We have a personal relationship with him. He lives not just in history and in eternity. He lives in us. And finally, Paul concludes. Here's the big deal for Paul. He said, look, I've just marshaled down these witnesses. Every one of them were skeptics. 
That's why he welcomes our skepticism. Every one of them at the point of Jesus' crucifixion, not one of them believed anymore. Not one, except for maybe John, who was uh, at, at the table, at the cross. But most of them concluded it's over. It was a fake. He was a great guy. He, we loved his teaching. He just kind of went a little bit overboard. How stupid could we be? Three days later, 40 days later, they turned the world upside down. Paul says, I'm the final proof. He, he said, look, I knew Peter. I know James. Literally, historically, we can prove that. I, I know a lot of these folk who get bear witness of seeing the resurrected Christ. I talk to them, I know them. But at the end of the day, I, I need you to know about me, Paul would say. Look, I had what was equivalent to a PhD in philosophy in my time. Folk understood I was brilliant. I wasn't stupid. I, I was the keeper of our religious traditions. I, 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 I could quote books, if you will, from the Torah, the Jewish texts. I was a Pharisee. He said when people grew up, raised up in the Jewish tradition, started talking about this Jesus is alive, and they started talking about worshiping him, that was blasphemy. The only person you worship is God. And so I, I, I got authority, and I started actually wiping people out. That was his, he was driving a purification of the religion. That's what ISIS is doing, by the way. That's why they're killing a lot of people who are Muslim. They're purifying the religion. And they're killing uh, Christians who are not Muslim. They're, 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 they're part of what they're doing. They're purifying the religion. Just think, if the leader of ISIS suddenly turned around and said, I'm going to start preaching Jesus. People were like, what, 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 what? That was Paul. That's why he says, I'm the least. I shouldn't even be here. He said, because I was killing people left and right. I was dragging people to jail. He said, but one day, Acts 9 gives us a story, and he testifies about it multiple times. One day I was on the Damascus Road, and I just knew I was right, and I just understood that what I understood. And I knew that it was a hoax, and I knew that these people were crazy. And I was trying to preserve my religion. And then I ran and joined myself. Paul, Paul, why dost thou persecute me? I've called you. Now, here's the good news. Watch this. So Paul concludes this. Is, and notice that Paul, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. The letters became most of the New Testament. Paul raised up the majority of the churches throughout Asia Minor. Paul became a dynamo upon which the foundation of the church exists today. And, and Paul would say, you know, what's the most fascinating thing about why I just call this good news? That he lived, that he died for our sins, shout our sins, that he was buried. I'm talking about what's the most important thing. And the proof of all of that is an empty tool. He rose again. And there's a chorus of skeptics who've been transformed by a personal encounter with him. And, 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 and I'm in that line. He says, you know what the most important, what's so incredible about this good news is that I was the worst. I was a murderer. I was the worst sinner that I could imagine. And he not only picked me and forgave me and redeemed me and loved me, he then authorized me to go tell other people that he lives. Oh, that's the good news, y'all, as I conclude for today. That's the good news. 
Some of us will not come to God because we think we're too dirty. We won't come, we won't believe because we think our lives are too tattered. We won't believe because of all of the things that make us unacceptable in our own minds. But the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ says that there is nobody too dirty, too tattered, too far removed. God in Jesus loved you, thought you were worth it so much that he died for you and he got up with all power for you. Here's the starting point. What are you going to do with Jesus? You. What are you going to believe? Amen.